Well, to start off our message time today, I want to show you some shots of our campus. This is from a free tool called Street View. I'm sure most of you have used this before. You can pull up almost any address in the country and see what things look like from the ground level. Let me show you some other examples of neat things in Street View. There's the Colosseum in Rome, the Swiss Alps, even the Great Barrier Reef. When you're looking through Street View, you can't see a large area at once, but what you do see is in great detail. We can walk around and see more things up close this way, but our perspective is always limited by our close field of view. But then we can zoom out and get a satellite image of the area. Now we see in a much larger area, but in less close detail. When we're making big plans, we rely a lot on this type of big picture perspective. What I want you to think about is this. We go through life in street view, but God sees the satellite image. Now, if you've been with us each week for the story of Joseph, that's not a big revelation to you. Throughout this study, we've seen again and again that people live in the moment and God sees the whole big picture. People who feel like they are walking through a valley can't see what God sees on the other side of the mountain in front of them. Today's story in the life of Joseph is going to cause us to zoom out farther than we've seen before. Now, in case anyone is watching for the first time, let me get you caught up. Joseph lived just under 4,000 years ago in a place called Canaan in the Middle East. His father, Jacob, gave him special treatment, so his brothers were jealous. They were half-brothers, and they wanted to kill him. They ended up selling him off as a slave. Joseph was purchased by a wealthy Egyptian, and he was given more and more responsibility until the wife of that Egyptian made a false accusation against him, and he was thrown into a political prison. While he was there, God gave him the ability to interpret the dreams of a couple of fellow prisoners. And eventually, one of those prisoners who was released recommended Joseph to Pharaoh to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. So Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's dreams and gave all the credit to God. He said there would be seven years when the fields would produce a ton of food. But not to get careless about that, because hard times were coming with seven years of famine where the fields would produce no food. The solution was a nationwide savings program to prepare for the disaster ahead. And Pharaoh put Joseph in charge of the whole country to oversee this project. When the famine hit, Joseph's brothers came reluctantly to Egypt to buy some food. Now, they believed Joseph was dead at this point, but they remembered what they did 20 years earlier, and they believed God was still punishing them for that. The brothers were brought before Joseph in Egypt, and he recognized them instantly, but they did not recognize him because he was 20 years older, and he looked like an Egyptian at this point. Had all the, the head garb on and everything, I'm sure. So he decided to test them to see if they had changed. He kept one brother, Simeon, in Egypt, and gave the rest of them the grain that they paid for, plus extra provisions for the long trip back to Canaan. And he secretly had their money that they used to buy the food placed back in their bags. He also told them that to get their brother Simeon back, they would need to bring back the youngest brother, Benjamin, with them to Egypt. Well, Benjamin was Joseph's younger full brother, his only full brother. And he had nothing to do with Joseph being sold as a slave. The other brothers had claimed to Joseph here that Benjamin was still alive, but Joseph wanted to make sure they were telling the truth and had really changed their ways before he revealed himself to them. So when the brothers returned home, they and their father Jacob were horrified 
to find their money returned to them. Now they could be accused of stealing if they returned to Egypt. So it was much harder to go back. And Jacob refused to let them take Benjamin with them anyway. So they all left Simeon stuck in Egypt until the food started to run out. And that's where we pick up the story today. But before we do that, I want to just pray and ask God to teach us today. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to study your word today. And I want to thank you, Lord, for those who are watching online right now and those who are gathered on our campus right now in multiple different venues. God, I pray that you would keep us safe. I pray that you would watch over our community, that you would protect us from the coronavirus, Lord, that, that you would uh, keep us from being a place of transmission here at the church. Lord, I pray that you'd watch over this entire flock of people, God, and keep us safe and protect us and help us to protect others. And Lord, as we study your word today, I pray that you would give us insight. Maybe it's something I say. Maybe it'll be something that your Holy Spirit just does in the hearts of people who are watching this right now, who need to hear something from you, but maybe it's not even the words that I will speak. Maybe it's something that you will just kind of touch their heart with, Lord. Or maybe it is something that I will say that you will take and you will use and, and apply it to their life in a way that helps them to know how to live in a way that honors you. Teach us today how you want us to live, God, from your word. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, if you've got your Bible open, go ahead and turn it to Genesis chapter 43 and read this along with me, starting in verse one. But the famine continued to ravage the land of Canaan. When the grain they had brought from Egypt was almost gone, Jacob said to his sons, go back and buy us a little more food. But Judah said, the man was serious when he warned us, you won't see my face again unless your brother is with you. If you send Benjamin with us, we will go and buy more food. But if you don't let Benjamin go, we won't go either. Remember, the man said, you won't see my face again unless your brother is with you. So this situation is, is dire. They need to buy food or they will starve. And when it comes to spare food, Egypt is the only game in town. Actually, it's, it's not in town. It's, it's a long ways away. Imagine if Florida was the only place you could buy groceries and you had to ride donkeys to get there. The journey for them was probably a, about a month. But something interesting happens here. When Jacob tells his sons to go get more food, you might expect Reuben to speak for the other brothers, as he has been all along. But it's actually Judah that starts to take the lead here. And why exactly this happens at this point, we don't really know. But it seems that Moses is drawing our attention to it. Moses is the author of this book, Genesis. Judah is the fourth oldest boy, the son of Jacob and Leah. The four oldest boys all did some terrible things over the years. What Reuben did cost him his birthright and his position uh, as, as the inheritance birthright from Jacob. Simeon and Levi were the next two, and Jacob scolded them really harshly for some of the horrible things that they did. Judah made some pretty big mistakes too, but as we will see, he has grown a lot since then. I won't tell you everything Judah did here, but out of the 50 chapters in Genesis, one entire chapter is dedicated to how messed up Judah and his family were. It's Genesis 38, if you want to read it later. All you really need to know is that Judah's story would probably be rejected as a soap opera plot for being too inappropriate. Now, Judah is also the brother who came up with the idea to sell Joseph as a slave. And that fact will be really important later on in the story. 
Right now, Jacob doesn't want to let Benjamin go, even though he's 30 years old at this point and has 10 sons of his own already. Jacob is very protective of him. So Judah steps in again. He said to his father, send the boy with me and we will be on our way. Otherwise, we will all die of starvation. And not only we, but you and our little ones. In other words, he's saying here, dad, you don't really have a choice here. This is our only hope. I personally guarantee his safety. You may hold me responsible if I don't bring him back to you. Then let me bear the blame forever. If we hadn't wasted all this time, we could have gone and returned twice by now. Now, if it takes over a month to make the journey, and they could have gone and returned twice already, it must have been several months since they returned from Egypt, probably a whole year. So poor Simeon is stuck in a prison in Egypt this whole time. Now, it was probably more like a jail room in Joseph's palace, or maybe the palace of the captain of the guard, where Joseph had lived for two years. But notice how differently Judah operates now with Benjamin compared to the way he treated Joseph 20 years ago. He couldn't wait to get rid of Joseph. He was willing to sell him as a slave and lie about it to their dad. But now he is taking all the responsibility for keeping Benjamin safe. You might think that after Joseph was gone and Benjamin became the favorite son, that the other brothers would hate him and want to get rid of him too. But that's not at all what happened. So Jacob finally agrees. He didn't have much choice. It was either risk losing Benjamin or risk losing the whole family to starvation. And he sends the brothers with all kinds of gifts to appease the mysterious Egyptian ruler they would meet with. They bring double the money so that in case they are accused of stealing the food, they can just hand over the extra money as well. And Jacob sends off his boys with these words. He says, May God Almighty give you mercy as you go before the man, so that he will release Simeon and let Benjamin return. But if I must lose my children, so be it. It's a devastating thing to think about. Something most of us will never have to experience, hopefully. To risk losing a child to save an entire family. But this is the reality for Jacob, and he appeals to God. The name he knows for God is El Shaddai. That's actually the Hebrew that's used here, El Shaddai. We translate it God Almighty. It's how God introduced himself to Abraham, Jacob's grandfather. I am El Shaddai. And it's how God referred to himself when he appeared to Jacob as well. He said, I am El Shaddai. El Shaddai, the God who is all-powerful. The people around them may worship other supposed gods, gods of rain and crops and fertility and war, but the one true God is the all-powerful God, El Shaddai, the God who is more powerful than all of them. And so Jacob prays to this God for God's mercy and a good outcome for his sons, and the brothers head off to Egypt. When they arrive, they are immediately taken to Joseph's house which really freaks them out. The Bible says the brothers were terrified when they saw that they were being taken into Joseph's house. It's because of the money someone put in our sacks last time we were here, they said. He plans to pretend that we stole it, and then he will seize us and make us slaves and take our donkeys. Now, this is how you know these guys were real, legit farmers. Look at the escalation of horrors here. He will seize us, and he will make us slaves, and he will even take our donkeys, not the donkeys. I would think that after being captured and turned into slaves, you wouldn't really care that much what happened to your donkey, but evidently they really cared about their donkeys. So they tried to get ahead of this. 
and give the money back to Joseph's assistant. They explained the mix-up and how they wanted to return the money. And here's what they heard in response. Relax. Don't be afraid, the household manager told them. Your God, the God of your father, must have put this treasure into your sacks. I know I received your payment. Now we've seen throughout Joseph's time in Egypt, he has been a faithful witness for his God. Everyone seems to know about Joseph's God because he's not quiet about how important God is to him. And and I just wonder if the same thing can be said about us. Then he released Simeon and brought him out to them. The manager then led the men into Joseph's palace. He gave them water to wash their feet and provided food for their donkeys, which as we've learned is a big deal to these guys. When Joseph came home, they gave him the gifts they had brought him, then bowed to him to the ground before him. After greeting them, he asked, how is your father? The old man you spoke about, is he still alive? Yes, they replied. Our father, your servant, is alive and well. And they bowed low again. Then Joseph looked at his brother Benjamin, the son of his own mother. Is this your youngest brother? The one you told me about? Joseph asked. May God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried from the room because he was overcome with emotion for his brother. He went into his own private room where he broke down and wept. You have to realize that this is Joseph's only full brother, the only other child of Rachel. He was a young boy about 10 years old when Joseph saw him last. And the feelings are welling up inside of him to the point where he's about to burst into tears. But he can't do that yet. That would expose his true identity. And the test results aren't in yet. Yes, the older brothers brought Benjamin back with them. But how are they treating the new favorite son of Jacob? What would they do if given the opportunity to abandon him in Egypt? Joseph had to hide his emotions, so he he quickly left to a private room. This wasn't a macho thing where he couldn't let them see him cry. Later on, he will cry with his brothers so loudly that the Egyptians and other parts of the palace will hear him. But that can't happen yet. After the moment passes and Joseph cleans himself up and returns for dinner, as the food is prepared, he decides to mess with the brothers a little bit. Joseph told each of his brothers where to sit, and to their amazement, he seated them according to age from oldest to youngest. Now, the odds of a stranger doing that correctly are about 1 in 40 million. The Bible doesn't tell us But I think Joseph was loving every minute of this. Before, he had to hide his tears. Now, he has to hide his laughter. And what I love about this is just how human Joseph is. He's the second most powerful person in Egypt, arguably the world at this point. But Moses writes about him breaking down in tears and pulling pranks. Isn't the Bible awesome? But Joseph also has a couple more tests for the brothers. And here's one. And Joseph filled their plates with food from his own table, giving Benjamin five times as much as he gave the others. So they feasted and drank freely with him. So what's the test here? How will the brothers react to the outlandishly generous portions given to Benjamin? Will they grumble? Will they show glimpses of disdain and jealousy? But no, they just feast and drink freely. No one seems to care that Benjamin is getting special treatment. So it's time for the last 
test. As the brothers prepare to leave, Joseph again tells his staff to slip their money back into their bags when they aren't looking. Only this time, he wants them to put his personal silver cup in Benjamin's bag. Now, you might be wondering, didn't he already try this test? Yes, but this is really upping the ante. The brothers were up at dawn and were sent on their journey with their loaded donkeys. But when they had gone only a short distance and were barely out of the city, Joseph said to his palace manager, chase after them and stop them. When you catch up to them, ask them, why have you repaid my kindness with such evil? Why have you stolen my master's personal cup, which he uses to predict the future? What a wicked thing you have done. Now, I can't, I can't go on without addressing this silver cup that tells the future, because I know a lot of you are hearing that and going, hold on, I don't remember this from the Bible. There were silver cups that they used to tell the future. All right, so we know that Joseph doesn't actually believe this, because every time he's interpreted dreams to tell the future, he's given the credit to God, not some silver cup. In fact, he told the baker and the cupbearer that uh, interpreting dreams and, and telling the future as a part of that were God's business, not man's business. So why does Joseph want his assistant to say that this is a special cup he uses to tell the future? Well, many rulers in the ancient world were very superstitious. They wanted to get any advantage they could to increase their power or stay in power. And this is why interpreting dreams was a big deal. They had other beliefs too about how to tell the future so they could try to make better decisions that would improve their lives and their kingdoms. And one of those practices involved staring at water in a bowl or a cup to try to get messages. Another practice was similar, but involved putting oil in the water and watching the shapes it would make to try to get messages that way. Obviously, this is nonsense. There's no support for this in the Bible. And if anyone is getting a message that way, it's probably communication from a demon and not from God. But I'll bet a common rumor in Egypt was that this was how Joseph was able to rise to power so quickly and lead so effectively. I mean, somebody who did that well, that quickly, must have something up their sleeve, right? I mean, if they had social media back then, there would be videos and memes explaining how Joseph's magical cup was the secret source of his wisdom. But another thing this does for Joseph is to continue his Egyptian cover. See, it was normal for the rulers to use these kinds of methods to try to get an advantage, even if it was superstitious nonsense. They, they still would believe it. Or even if they didn't believe it, they might want their followers to believe it. It kind of gave them legitimacy as a ruler. And it communicated for these brothers the seriousness of the crime. If this was the special cup, the, the one that the rumors were about, the cup that was the secret source of Joseph's power and insight, the crime of taking it would be enormous, which explains why the brothers will take it so seriously in a minute. When the palace manager caught up with the men, he spoke to them as he had been instructed. What are you talking about? The brothers responded, Why are your uh, we are your servants. We would never do such a thing. Didn't we return the money we found in our sacks? We brought it back all the way from the land of Canaan. Why would we steal silver or gold from your master's house? If you find his cup with any one of us, let that man die. And all the rest of us, my Lord, will be your slaves. Now, that's a pretty harsh suggestion for a stolen cup. But the idea was that this was no normal cup. And the brothers are certain that they didn't take it. 
Something, that would be a huge deal. So they offer the radical solution that whoever took it should die, and if any of them took it, they will all be slaves. To which Joseph's assistant replied, that's fair, but only the one who stole the cup will be my slave. The rest of you may go free. Now notice the assistant is more reasonable. Instead of all of them being slaves, just one. Instead of death for the one with the cup, just slavery. They all quickly took their sacks from the backs of their donkeys and opened them. The palace manager searched the brothers' sacks from the oldest to the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. When the brothers saw this, they tore their clothing in despair. Then they loaded their donkeys again and returned to the city. Now, what did the assistant say? The one with the cup will come back to Egypt, but everyone else can go free. Now's their chance. Only Benjamin has to return. Everyone else can go home with food for their families. It's another part of the test. And they pass. Any of them could continue back to Canaan, but every one of them heads back to Egypt. Back at Joseph's palace, the brothers bow down, and Judah again speaks up for his brothers. Judah answered, Oh, my Lord, what can we say to you? How can we explain this? How can we prove our innocence? God is punishing us for our sins. My Lord, we have all returned to be your slaves, all of us, not just our brother who had your cup in his sack. So every single brother was willing to join Benjamin in slavery. And think about it. Simeon has just spent like a year in Egypt as a prisoner, and he is now also coming back and saying, I will return to be a slave here so that Benjamin doesn't have to be here alone. These are very different brothers than the ones Joseph knew long ago. No, Joseph said, I would never do such a thing. Only the man who stole the cup will be my slave. The rest of you may go back to your father in peace. Now, this is it. The moment Joseph has been waiting for. He has given the brothers every opportunity to abandon one of their own. He's given them every excuse to do again what they did to him. And now he's not really giving the option. He's telling them only Benjamin will be forced to stay. The rest of you will be forced to leave. And who steps up again but Judah? In fact, the Bible says that he literally stepped forward. He told Joseph about their family, their dad. And he even mentioned the loss of another son, Benjamin's full brother, many years ago. That loss devastated their father. And losing Benjamin would likely send their father to his grave. And here's the critical part. He says, My Lord, I guaranteed to my father that I would take care of the boy. I told him, if I don't bring him back to you, I will bear the blame forever. So please, my Lord, let me stay here as a slave instead of this boy. And let the boy return with his brothers. For how can I return to my father if the boy is not with me? I couldn't bear to see the anguish this would cause my father. Now, just flash back. Just over 20 years ago, Joseph is in the bottom of an old well, trapped by his brothers who are talking above him. He can hear them arguing about what to do with them. He knows their voices well. He can picture who is saying what. He can remember the words vividly. And Judah speaks up and suggests selling Joseph as a slave to the passing caravan on its way to Egypt. Those simple words from Judah's mouth would set in motion decades of pain, loneliness, and discouragement. And now from the same mouth come words of salvation, words of sacrifice, words of healing. Joseph could stand it no longer. 
there were many people in the room and he said to his attendants, out all of you. So he, he was alone with his brothers when he told them who he was. Then he broke down and wept. He wept so loudly the Egyptians could hear him and word of it quickly carried to Pharaoh's palace. And then Joseph reveals his identity to his brothers and he says these powerful words. He says, don't be upset. Don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. That's amazing perspective. I've had people do some mean things to me in the past. It would be hard for me to say, don't be angry with yourself. God took the bad things you did for me and actually used them for good. But as I think back on some of those situations, it's true. I am who I am today because of the good things and the bad things I've experienced. And so are you. But it's hard to see that when we're all looking at this in street view. See, Joseph finally saw the satellite image. He saw what God was doing all along and he realized that through tragedies that, that don't make sense to us at the time, God can bring about something beautiful and wonderful that brings glory to him. Let me say that just one more time and just let this sink in. Through tragedies that don't make sense to us, God can bring about something beautiful and wonderful that brings glory to him. There's something else to consider here. Judah is now emerging as a leader among the brothers. Reuben lost his place. Simeon and Levi, number two and number three, are honestly not the best leaders. And Jacob will actually talk about that later. We won't address that today, but in a, in a future message. But Moses, the author of this book of Genesis, is helping his readers see how Judah became so prominent in Israel. Judah's family would become the family of the kings of Israel. The tribe of Judah would be powerful and influential as a tribe in Israel. But if all you saw was the Judah of Genesis 37 or 38, you might think this guy was a train wreck. His family was a mess. His kids made horrible choices. He made horrible choices. And yet, as he grew in character and wisdom and leadership, God established him for him an amazing legacy of godly leaders in his family. Leaders who still made mistakes, but it was an incredible legacy that no one could have predicted from the street view back then. So what does this mean for you and for me? Let me suggest three takeaways. There are more, and you may have already picked up on something for you, but here are the three that come to my mind. The first one we've talked about already. In the valleys of life, remember that you see the street view, but God sees the satellite image. A great question to ask is this. Five years from now, how do I want to remember this difficult time? That question, five years from now, how will I look back on, how do I want to remember this challenging time? That can help you zoom out and get a better perspective on what you're going through right now. But here's another important takeaway. Joseph teaches us how to deal with hurt in a healthy way. He could have held on to anger and bitterness and let it consume his thoughts for 20 years. He could have dreamed about revenge and in the end, he actually had the power to get revenge. So how did Joseph not become destroyed by anger and bitterness from the hurt he wrongfully endured? He replaced anger and bitterness with trust in God. Now, I know this is not easy to do, 
and we need to ask God for help to do this. But the only reason to hold on to anger and bitterness towards someone else is if we don't really trust the sovereignty of God. Here's the reality. If it happened, God either caused it or he allowed it. I don't believe in fatalism where God is the direct cause of everything. But if God is all-knowing and if God is all-powerful, he either caused it or he allowed it. And as terrible as that may seem, the necessary byproduct of giving humans freedom to act is that sometimes they act poorly. And when they act poorly, those actions have consequences that sometimes impact other innocent people. But when that happens, and I'm sure it has happened to you, we can do either of these two things. We can either adopt a victim mentality or we can adopt a trusting mentality. See, I can either whine and complain about how unfair life is or I can recognize that God has allowed that unfairness in my life and will ultimately make something good out of it. You can't control what other people do to you. All you can control is your response. Trusting in God is what allows us to respond with love and grace and responsibility for our own actions. Finally, here's a takeaway we probably don't talk about enough in churches. Joseph forgave his brothers, but he wasn't naive about it. He didn't just blindly accept them back into his circle of trust after what they did to him. He set up healthy boundaries to see if they really changed. He never mistreated them. In fact, he was very good and generous with them, but he didn't just let his guard down right away. Sometimes we let other people hurt us again and again. We might even think it's the biblical thing to do, to turn the other cheek, but that's not what that means. Forgiveness does not mean giving that person the same access they had before. Setting healthy boundaries for people that hurt us is not unbiblical, and it's not unloving. Sometimes setting healthy boundaries is the most healthy thing you can do, not just for you, but for the other person who hurt you. If they are a toxic or abusive or draining person or be, are becoming that way, that is not what God wants for them. They may need to run into some of the boundaries to make them wake up and realize that what they're doing is wrong. Maybe running into your boundaries is what God will use to change their hearts. Listen, being a doormat is not real love for the other person. No matter what you're going through right now, remember the satellite image that God sees and deal with the hurt in a healthy way and trust in God and set healthy boundaries on relationships like Joseph did. Let me pray for you. God, I'm sure there are some people who are watching this right now who are, are dealing with some challenging people in their lives and they wanna forgive them and they want to trust in you, and they, and they want things to be back to normal, and they just want to get past it. Um, but, but maybe they find themselves in a situation where for them, forgiveness looks like acceptance of the other person hurting them, and we know that's not healthy. That's not what you want for us. We know that Jesus set up healthy boundaries in his life. Paul set healthy boundaries in his life. The Bible is full of examples of people like Joseph and Jesus and Paul and many others who actually set up healthy biblical boundaries to keep people from hurting them again. It's a good, godly thing to do. And I'm sure there are people that need to hear that and need to establish some healthy boundaries in their lives. God, I'm sure there are some other people who are going through difficult valleys right now. Maybe they've lost a job, lost a loved one, uh, lost a relationship that they care about deeply. Uh, maybe they've experienced some incredible discouragement or disappointment in their life. 
And God, I pray that you would help them to remember right now that you see the satellite image. Yes, they're going through this in street view. Yes, they can't see over that next mountain, but you do. And so, Lord, help them by remembering that to trust in you and show yourself faithful to them, God, as they remain faithful to you. Lord, we thank you for everything you're teaching us through the life and story of Joseph. Help us to apply it this week. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen.